So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spending way too much time on social media? Derek here from Conspirituality, and you might be able to break the cycle of doom scrolling on Elon Musk's haunted Twitter by tuning into the Crooked Media podcast offline with John Favreau. I have been a Crooked Media fan since the company was founded, and I'm really excited to be talking about offline because it's a different kind of Sunday show. It's a chance to step outside our social media-fueled news cycles and hear smarter, lighter conversations about how chronically online existence and shapes the way that we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Each week, John Favreau is joined by notable guests like Stephen Colbert, Hassan Piker, ContraPoints, Margaret Atwood, what? All for intimate conversations about how to live happier, healthier lives, both on and offline. New episodes of Offline with John Favreau drop every Sunday wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to Conspirituality, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. And in today's brief, we're going to discuss how some of these forces converge to spread misinformation and perform sleights of hand around the topic of climate change. I'm Derek Barris. My guest today is Maya Lilly, a film, television, and digital media producer who focuses on activist documentary storytelling. And Maya's resume backs all of that up. Uh, you have worked in producer, producer roles on The Big Fix, which examined the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010, Immigrant Prisons, which looks at for-profit immigration detention centers, Generation Wealth about income disparity and pathologies that infect the uber-wealthy, Resist and Finding Justice, which, which both look at injustices Black communities face around the country, like police brutality in Minneapolis pre-George Floyd, and you directed Fighting Pollution, Industry, and Cancer Alley, which looks at racial disparities in health and environmental protections. You've also worked on a few films on solar power and renewable energies. So Maya, given all of this work, do you have any hope that humans can turn things around in regards to climate change? Derek coming in hot at the jump. Thank you, Derek. Get right in. <laughs> Get right the in there. Biggest question of all time. Uh, well, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I think hope is kind of like forgiveness. It's a constantly moving target. And so I am hopeful about certain things and not hopeful about others. It's super nuanced. 
Um, so I- I'm hopeful that the folks on the ground that are fighting the hardest battles in climate right now, they already had a strong community for reasons other than climate, like, you know, faith-based communities in Louisiana that were already fighting pollution in their black communities that are suddenly climate activists and that know everybody in town and have like the amazing like spread of information already, you know, so like black women that won us the vote four years ago and, and they're helping the climate fight as well. That gives me hope. I'm hopeful that, you know, a grandma who used to teach disabled kids in Louisiana could shut down a multi-billion dollar plastics plant like what I showed in that that documentary. And she did, you know, because it would have tripled the air pollution in her neighborhood. Um, I'm hopeful that climate activists are finding really cool new ways of tackling the problem. So instead of just doing like direct action banner drops, which weren't getting anywhere, you know, um, they are like targeting the banks, you know, and trying to get banks to stop, you know, funding future oil and gas. They're targeting insurers, like in the Willow Project in Alaska, trying to get them to pull out of those projects. They've created campaigns like Stop the Money Pipeline just to show like who all is funding what. So that gives me hope. And then Another thing I'm hopeful, deeply, deeply resonant and hopeful with is the youth climate activists. You know, in 2019, when Greta came on the scene and I got to film with her and then the kids flooded their schools and and struck all across the world, like that basically shifted the Overton window entirely. It it made climate a conversation piece. And yeah, the right came out of the woodworks to kind of, you know, and and Trump started tweeting at her (laughs) saying she should have a movie night. But, you know, it it completely changed the scene. Before it was like us nerds in the background and scientists who who were screaming into the void. And then all of a sudden, like the kids did it. And it was because the kids had Google and the internet, thanks to our generation. (laughs) And And the kids had all read the Paris Climate Accord. They had all read about 1.5 degrees, or maybe let's let's be honest, like maybe they skimmed, right? But they had all read about 1.5 degrees of Celsius. So they had read like what happens when we all the coral reefs in the world die or what happens when we have like extreme un, unadaptable heat, you know, and in, in precipitation. Like they knew about it. So they, and shout out to David Wallace Wells who, wrote The Uninhabitable Earth, which is one of the better, most terrifying reads. Um, so that that's all that I have confidence in. What I don't have confidence in is like, honestly, the UN cops or business as usual models or relying on the tech bros to create carbon capture or like market on big scales, figuring this out. Because what I've found in my work is that people don't think about the planet. They think about pollution in their kids' lungs because of their gas stove in the house. You know, they think locally. So, you know, I I think it's people, I think people are just trying to preserve their um, business, their way of life, their money. And so I don't have a lot of faith that those systems will help us. First, I want to flag that in the show notes, you have created a curated reading list. Thank you. And that will be for anyone who wants to look at what you read and what you learn from. Second point, Gen X has created everything good and we will never get credit for it. So I want to point that out. But in terms, in terms of hope, uh, you know, we, uh, we're recording this on Thursday. It's coming out Saturday. But today's episode uh, on the main feed, we end with what we're hopeful for about in 2024. And I bring up the fact that this year 
we saw the overreach with abortion and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and we saw the activation of so many people fighting that. And then we also saw one of the strongest labor union movements that we've seen in a century, and that is ongoing. And both of those get to the point of what you're referencing is that it is affecting people's bodies, which is very intimate. It's affecting people's jobs, which they need to survive. But in the situation with climate, it is a little different. So I worked as a columnist for Big Think for nine years. I wrote a number of stories dating back to like 2011 on climate change. I actually started writing about the topic in the 90s when I worked for a newspaper in Princeton. So I've kind of seen many iterations of this throughout my own career in journalism. Now, at one point, my Big Think editor said, hey, these articles don't perform so well. We need to talk about other things. So I was told to stop writing those articles. And without that immediacy that affects your personal life, it's like, how many reports do we need to see before the public actually cares? Or does it always have to be on the fact that someone's basement gets flooded out and then you have to deal with it right in the moment. I mean, he's talking about my basement, people. That's, <laughs> my, my basement was in the, the flood zone of this bad storm that we got. We this got week. This week. In 24 hours. So my, my sump pumps are going. Well, you know, when I was a little climate and environmentalist nerd in the 90s, I remember reading Earth in the Balance by Al Gore. And a, a, a piece of that book that I highlighted on repeat was he said, if a problem is so big that one simple human action can't solve it, then instead of people taking a step to solve it, they shut down and they don't take any steps. And I always remembered that. And it's like one of the only things I remember about that book. Um, because, you know, I feel like my trajectory, even as a film and TV climate producer is like, well, how do I get people to take that step if the problem is so huge? I think we are undervaluing how much people care uh, about the climate crisis. I, I think journalists and editors are definitely undervaluing how much people care about the climate crisis. I'm not sure why. Maybe that's an answer for you, Derek. But um, one of the tenets we follow in my organization, The Years Project, is we follow um, Yale did like Yale's program on climate communication. They identified six Americas on climate. And we find it really helpful because it's way more specific and nuanced. And, and the, the six communities are alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, and dismissive. Obviously, like MAGA Republicans are dismissive all the way over and then, you know, to alarmed, which is us. But what's interesting about this work is that um, you know, the alarmed, they're most worried about like the threat and they support and engage in pro-climate action. And then it's like all the way through, like so concerned or worried about it, but they view it as less of a threat. They're less motivated to act. Um, so Yale is constantly surveying these groups and you can look at, you can look at their charts. They're really interesting. But so the Americans that are alarmed outnumber the dismissive two to one. So 28% of Americans are alarmed as opposed to dismissive, which is 11%. And that number of alarmed has doubled in 10 years. So the next category down from that concerned is at 29%. So one percentage point more. If you add in, I'm totally using like a report to talk about your do reports work. By the way. <laughs> I know that I'm doing that, but it has a point. So, so if we group alarmed and concerned together, that's 56% of Americans that fall into those categories. That's that's big. And also Yale has found that the percentage of Republicans that are 
either now alarmed or concerned as well, has increased six percentage points over the past year. So there are more Republicans realizing because they're seeing hurricanes on their doorstep and wildfires and floods and all of it, that this is happening. So, you know, the problem is, and and this is the problem I'm always confronting in my work is people, the people want climate. So the majority of the people want climate solutions and policies, and we outnumber those who don't. It's just that our elected don't think that's the case. And they've, so we're stymied at the federal level, right? Well, to answer your question, I mean, there's so, there are a number of reasons, but it really does come down to so much media is driven by clicks and the right really does control the conversation. I was just watching a bunch of journalists this morning on threads talk about how Chris Rufo keeps telling you what he's going to do and then he does it. And then journalists just cover it as if he laid it out without actually analyzing it. And I would argue that we're going to get to the the right in a little bit. Um, but I first want to talk about COP28, which just happened, which was the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference. Does this conference really mean anything at a governance level? My best answer is kind of, sort of. I mean, it's, so it's so it's the only function that of its kind that has brought the world together on this issue, you know, so that's good. Yeah. Um, and it is a global problem, which is, you know, so that's good. Everybody's coming together. Um, but it's non-binding, you know, like meaning that there, there's no Hague agency that's going to lock up the politicians if they don't stick with what they agreed upon in, in 2023 at COP 28, you know, if they don't meet their own commitment. So it's like, it's like, Every country making a to-do list with other countries, <laughs> like, okay, cut my carbon emissions, check. <laughs> and then the only people looking over their shoulder are at the next climate meeting, right? So, so this year they did right out the gate make uh, like the first glow. So right out the gate, they basically like gave vulnerable countries um, a fund, so that the rich countries who have been doing the majority of the pollution will fund the vulnerable countries like the Marshall Islands that are, had did nothing to do cause this crisis and then are you know facing the first and hardest impacts. So that happened right out the gate, which is amazing. Um, they made a global pact basically that mentions a transition away from fossil fuel usage instead of phasing it out which means reduce, not stop. All the climate activists I'm in communication with are pissed about that because we all know that the science says we have to phase it out. We can't phase it down. You know, it's about like how fast we can phase it out is, is how big of impacts we're going to face as a human civilization, <laughs> you know? So, so more than a hundred countries lobbied really hard for that phase out language and they signed it, you know? So, so now that means that the world can like, you know, can phase out certain emissions without shunning specific fossil fuels. And yeah, it was run by like, you know, a CEO of an oil company who's also a Sultan. <laughs> he's a Sultan, right? <laughs> I think he's a Sultan. Yes. He's a <laughs> um, so, so, so I guess to sum up that, like I question if this like, you know, to do list, if oil and gas and coal are 80% of the world's energy, I question if, if this to-do list is something that and every place isn't just going to kind of, you know, chuck down the road. Like Copenhagen had one of the most advanced carbon, you know, plan for any country and they're not even meeting their commitments. 
you know, Denmark. Well, you, you talked about right out the gate, but there was also a lot of happening before the conference and the UAE was criticized for trying to greenwash their environmental record. So can you explain what greenwashing is to people who might not know and why the UAE was implicated implicated in attempting it? So greenwashing is that commercial by Exxon, you know, where you see people talking about how they want to help the earth and you see a girl in slow motion running through the field, holding the leaves and the flowers with her hand and the sunlight streaming through. But when actually like a really tiny percentage of their profits is going (laughs) to helping the problem and the vast majority of their profits is from oil, coal and gas. Um, that's greenwashing. Greenwashing is like Chevron pouring endless amounts of money into videos of little kids and cute animals while lobbying against the Clean Air and Water Acts. You know, it's basically tactics for companies to downplay their carbon emissions and exaggerate their clean energy commitments. And they're doing it. It's like a little shuck and jive. You know, they're doing it because they want to keep business as usual for as long as possible, but have people think that they're doing the right thing so they don't abandon them as consumers. So um, at COP, you know, the UAE and the Sultan hosting COP, you know, that was announced. Every every climate activist almost had a heart attack and shrieked in horror. And then they started to greenwash that record, you know, there and some people stood by him like John Kerry saying like, but he's like a really liberal progressive sultan. I keep wanting to say chic, but he's a sultan. He's like really liberal and progressive, you know, but like, you know, it's kind of, it's like having a, it's like having a tobacco executive at your bedside with the doctor advising on the emphysema patient. You know, is that really, is that really the best person you want advising on the situation of the person that's dying? You know, so, so another example of greenwashing that a lot of people don't know is Um, it was basically a ploy, the whole idea of like lower your carbon footprint, your individual carbon footprint was created by British Petroleum to make the emphasis seem like it's just on individuals. It's all these individuals all around the world that are causing this huge issue. (laughs) So if we all just like, you know, switch our light bulbs and drive Priuses you know, and maybe carpool, then that's going to solve the problem. When in reality, it's it's these few companies that are creating the enormity of the emissions. So a mom of two with, you know, a Prius changing her light bulbs isn't any competition for BP spilling oil in the Gulf, millions and millions of gallons, you know, or the what they're putting into the atmosphere as well. I lived in Brooklyn when the Deepwater Horizon spill happened, and I lived about three blocks from a BP gas station off of 4th Avenue. And I am not a proponent of graffiti. I am graffiti on public spaces. I I actually think it adds value, but I'm not for it against businesses. In this case, people took it on their own hands, not me, but some Brooklyn residents to let BP know how they felt (laughs) about them continuing and all the commercials they were spinning out about how green they were after that. Um, But, you know, a moment ago, you mentioned like the, the John Kerry and sort of the interference they're running to try to, to greenwash. But I also noticed that uh, 2,500 COP28 attendees were fossil fuel lobbyists Um, Many of the billionaires who attended COP28 flew their own private jets. And so, yes, there's long been this history of like, don't look at us, just 
just recycle and we're going to be good. So do you see this sort of sleight of hand often in your work? And like, how do you advise people to notice it and push back against it? I see it constantly, even, um, you know, with Toyota as an example, how Toyota is, is doing everything it, it, it can to not double down on electric cars, you know, and it's, it's actually kind of a climate criminal in that sense. You know, here's the thing. It's hard to convince someone to do the opposite of something if all their money and their job hinges on that thing. So, you know, it was easier for the Rockefeller kids to suddenly become climate activists because their job didn't depend on it. They'd already gotten all this generational wealth from their dad creating the oil industry <laughs> um, or, or grandpa, maybe grandpa, great grandpa. Um, so, so, you know, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Chase, who is the biggest contributor, 96 billion, biggest contributor to future fossil fuel funding. Um, he signed the Paris Accord and he wants climate action. He does just doesn't think it's his role to tell his investors not to invest in oil and gas. It's not, it's not my job. You know, he makes 35 million a year to shirk all responsibility in that. So our world is set up so that corporations can extract as much money off of the, as they can from finite resources. So the levers, the groups I work with are trying to pull now are more at the level of stopping that, those levers, like what, where, where are the places we can have the most impact fast, right? And I, I encourage people to look for those things, you know, when we're thinking about these big moving parts. So like lawsuits, you're suddenly seeing all these lawsuits even going up to the Supreme Court against these companies that have known for 40 years, their scientists knew. Their scientists, Chevron, Exxon, their, their scientists did some of the first work on carbon emissions. <laughs> They've known. They are, so like lawsuits, you know, just taking these people to task, attacking the banks, the insurers, laws, like trying to get like, you know, executive declarations, like emergency declarations and let the president use his full power as president with these emergency declarations, like the Defense Production Act. And then like voting in climate candidates, you know, laws. We need, we need more climate candidates who get this. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm kind of talking around your question because it's like, I think it just takes like a, a refined eye to really spot this. But I, what I'm talking to is it's happening constantly because the whole system is set up to benefit from it. And you're also bringing into the fact that something we deal with often on the podcast, which is institutional distrust and how do you tease apart all of these many complex and interwoven layers. So yes, the pharmaceutical industry is completely fucked up and healthcare in America is broken beyond belief, but that doesn't mean vaccines don't work. And that doesn't mean there aren't candidates out there who are trying to reform that system that we should be listening to. And I would extrapolate from that and apply it to climate change as well. And my hope is just more people can actually <laughs> support those candidates and, and more of those candidates could come to the front because we have a bad habit of CrossFit gym owners yelling at the camera and then people listen to them. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you, how do you work around that? Which, which brings us to the climate, it, it brings us to the noise within all the signal that you're trying to put forward, which is Fox News and all of the other conservatives. So, you know, there have been some wild theories about COP28 that have come out in the recent weeks. You know, Fox's Jesse Waters repeated an old sentiment that cold kills way more than heat. So a warm planet could be a good thing. 
the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh, he made a similar claim. Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro also said that. Alex Epstein told Charlie Kirk that fossil fuels are pro-human. Uh, climate skeptic Bjorn Lumberg, who I'm sure you've come across because he seems to be everywhere, uh, he's been on a bunch of these shows, and he just says people just need more air conditioning. Calm down. We'll be fine. I mean, are these men really that dumb or is there some sort of concerted effort over here going on? I think there is. Cog- I, I believe in cognitive dissonance. I think if you say something for long enough and you're in an echo chamber of a bunch of other people that are like reinforcing your beliefs, I think you do start to believe it, you know? So I think there is an element of that. But I also think that a lot, I, I think they have strategies to distract from the science, you know, because the science is completely against all of their talking points, um, which I don't even need to go into because they're so stupid. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's like uh, what you were saying before about like giving the journalists, giving full credence of this work, like it's side by side with the science that, that that's more my concern because I feel like the people that are watching Fox News, Fox News are, are seeing like, oh yeah, well maybe this is just like a, another, you know, another earth cycle where, you know, it's just a natural <laughs> cooling, you know, because somebody said that. And then, you know, we felt like we should put that side by side with, oh, I don't know, an actual somebody who's peer reviewed and, and studied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that is pretty obvious, especially in America more than anywhere else, I think, although, I mean, I think it is a global issue, but is is financial incentives. People are going to go where the money is. And do you think financial incentives for actually doing something on climate change will ever be there? Will, will it scale to the point where a Jamie Dimon will be like, yeah, fuck oil. We're all into solar now because it is going to, from my perspective, with a lot of them, I think there is dissonance, but it just comes down to where their bank account is and whatever whatever's pouring money into that. Exactly, and their their kids' bank accounts. Um, actually, a hundred percent, I do. I do actually believe this because we uh, are seeing a sea change in how cheap renewables have become and how fast we can get them out. There have been article after article this year about that very topic. Um, we need to electrify everything everywhere all at once is basically the consensus of most people. Um, and we need to make that energy source renewable at the top. So we need it to come from solar, wind, hydroelectricity, biomass. And it's, it's never been cheaper or more reliable than now. Um, it's cheaper than fossil fuels and it will only keep getting cheaper and it's getting better and faster because we are doing it more often. So just like anything, humans get really adaptable. Humans are getting better at making these processes. So, you know, so the last I read, 62% of global energy investment is slated to go to renewables this year. Um, A good source for this is the International Energy Agency, who is like, you know, uh, talking to countries about their energy use. So there's, so there's a clean energy revolution happening. The problem I'm, I'm confronting because we are working with the White House right now to get out like the news to different states about Biden's climate plan that he passed that nobody knows about, the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, like the problem is, you know, he passed the biggest climate legislation and nobody knows about it. And there are all these tax rebates and credits going to individuals and companies. So it spurred this clean energy boom that's happening. There are all sorts of new battery plants, everything, all sorts of things happening. Um, so the economics is totally on our side, Derek. I think 
all we have to do is get the old climate criminal guard, the old guard of climate criminals out of the way. And that part is key. Yeah. Well, maybe if he would have saved the plan on Hunter's laptop, some more people would have found out about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... So are there any companies in this space um, that you really appreciate that you think are doing good work? Rewiring America is kind of a genius company that are that are advising governments how we can electrify really quickly. I love them. Um, Environmental Voter Project, when we were talking about voting, they always need volunteers to help. And I, I volunteer with them pretty much every election cycle. And they basically like figure out what environmentalists and climate folks are not voting. And then we just get them out to the polls. So they're already aligned with climate issues and climate candidates. Um, they're great. There are a lot of great B cores. I mean, even companies like L'Oreal have, have some really, really great track records with track records with making their companies uh, carbon neutral um, and, and their products carbon neutral. Um, those are the three I think off off the top of my head, but there are like so many more. I can add more to my my little climate list for you. Cool. Yes. In the list, if you click on the show notes, uh, it is a, an evolving list. So you might want to check back as well, but there's plenty there to start with. I will say that I look forward to diving in. Um, so thank you for explaining all this, Maya. What are you working on right now in your world? So with the Years Project, um, we just did a film, a documentary about the train derailment in East Palestine, which was where a train carrying vinyl chloride, which goes to make plastics, uh, derailed. And they basically, instead of doing what they should have done, which is like tent the materials and then carry them out via the EPA, they blew up the vinyl chloride over the town. So we used that video that I made. I went and did two shoots on the ground. I had to wear a gas mask most of the time. Uh, we, we used that film and gifted it to the groups on the ground and they used it. So Beyond Plastics is one of the groups and they used it to target the EPA to ban vinyl chloride, which is a known carcinogen and it causes infertility in women. It, it's just been, it's a nightmare forever. So, and then the EPA is now because of our film and that targeting, they're now, they put it on the list of um, chemicals to consider banning. Uh, and that's the goal of my work is I want the work to, um, you know, follow documentary standards and principles, but f- but help groups on the ground that don't have access to Hollywood level storytelling. So the next piece I'm working on is your favorite place, Derek, Texas. Um, I have to go to Texas because I'm telling the story of outdoor workers and heat. And so all of these young workers who are dying, farm workers, construction workers, uh, delivery ma- delivery uh, people who are dying because of uh, heat and not and no protection. So like not being able to take rest breaks, water breaks by law. And Governor Abbott just rescinded the rest break law in Texas so that people can have a rest break. <laughs> 